This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. Legendary civil rights leader and former congressman John Lewis passed away this last week, and the man literally put his life on the line to bring the Voting Rights Act to life, dismantle Jim Crow laws across the country. But even as he grew from a young activist to an elder statesman, Lewis never stopped fighting for oppressed and disenfranchised people in the U.S. and around the world, and aligned himself with the young people spearheading the Black Lives Matter movement. In just a few, we'll hear from one of John Lewis's longtime friends and congressional colleagues, Bobby Rush, First, I want to turn to Duchess Harris, who's a professor of American Studies at McAllister College and author of the book, John Lewis, Civil Rights Leader and Congressman. Professor Harris, welcome to Reset. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure to talk with you. All right, so first thoughts when you heard the news uh, of the congressman's death. Oh, profound sadness. I mean, you know, um, I celebrate his life, but it's deeply sad. Yeah. You know, he and... and he died on the same day as C.T. Vivian, another civil rights icon, which is surprising to me because there was so much about John Lewis and not as much about C.T. Vivian. But their their legacies aligned. Their legacies align completely. I think that people don't know as much about C.T. Vivian because he was a leader of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Mm -hmm. The elders were members of SCLC. And when I say elders, I mean Martin Luther King was 37. And then the younger people were a part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and John Lewis then was 23. Mm. But as we know, the gap between 23 and 37 is quite a lot in terms of one's life cycle, particularly since um, people set up families earlier during that generation. And so John Lewis's generation found C.T. Vivian's generation to be cautious. To be fair, they were cautious because they already had families, um, whereas John Lewis was still an undergrad. But they led into one another. And so SCLC becomes SNCC. SNCC breaks off and becomes the Black Panther Party. Mm. Instead of choosing that route, John Lewis goes into Congress, one of the first African-Americans to serve in Congress. Wow. It's, it's really, when you think about that divide, just the generational divide, uh, and, you know, 37 and 23, it makes you think about today. It makes you think about the same issues where a younger protest movement is looking to their elders and saying, you're too cautious. <laughs> it's time It's time to, to, to make change happen right now. I mean, I feel like I'm personally living that. So I'm 51 years old and the president of the Minneapolis NAACP is 28. Hmm. She texted me yesterday and I feel like I advise her, but I didn't get arrested with her in Kentucky. She got arrested a few days ago protesting Breonna Taylor. And part of the reason why I didn't feel inspired to go to Kentucky and get arrested um, is because I'm 51. 
it's so interesting, especially when you think about how generations interact with each other. Because in your case, notwithstanding, I, I think about so many people who who will look and judge the way that young people are approaching protest because that's not how that's not how we did it when we were younger. That you're doing it a different way. What you're you're not doing it the right way. Things like that. But you know, John Lewis was a perfect example of that is how he did it when he was younger. It's just that he changed his tactics as he got older. So when he was 23, he was being hit on the head on the bridge, mm. right? The question, though, is just like, what are you doing when you're 43? And so John Lewis had profound respect for Black Lives Matter. He was speaking in favor of Black Lives Matter up until the very end of his life. And he didn't really have a critique of their strategy. I know that what he had was a hope that they would have policy requests that could be brought to legislation. I think that it is very difficult for people to negotiate what happened with the 60s and compare it to what we're living now. I think that people like to think of the 60s as having a moral arc and for 2020 to be chaos. And that's not actually how it's unfolding. The issue is that it's just very difficult to live in the moment as it's happening. And so I give a presentation where I will tell people that Black Lives Matter was actually more popular in 2016 than the 1963 Mm. March on Washington. Wow. The Gallup polls indicate that 61% of Americans were opposed to the March on Washington. And also, no disrespect to his memory, but President John F. Kennedy did not want the March on Washington to happen. Right. I'm blown away by the the comparisons. I think that that's so powerful for us right now. And and even when it comes to what we're talking about in Chicago today, the idea of Homeland Security federal agents coming to Chicago to, uh, I, I guess, to, to stem Chicago violence, but it's a little bit unclear. But the, it really kind of focuses on a power of the state. Uh, mm-hmm. and, that, and that seemed to be something that uh, played out in John Lewis's life through the police, which beat and jailed him uh, as a tool of oppression. So discuss that, the idea of, of what John Lewis had to go through when talking about the power of state and what we're seeing right now with this, this quote-unquote, law and order approach. Well, when you talk about the power of the state, I mean, one of the things that was remarkable about the Edmund Pettus Bridge was that the National Guard is brought in. And so it's not just local police officers in Selma. It's militarized. And so we see a return of that when you get to Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. And so this notion of, um, you know, the state imposing law and order is complicated because most citizens want law and order. But you have to ask yourselves what the protesters are moving toward and does that supersede law and order? And that's been a tricky question for more than 50 years. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's a lot of pushback here in Chicago this weekend because the police defended a statue. I and mean, that was really what the right. end of the day, this this fight and this right. uh, everything that was happening was about a statue that I think many in Chicago 
wouldn't have a problem if that statue was removed. I'm not, I don't want you to get into politics of, of statue removal or symbol removal, but I don't think, I think that's where there's a lot of people who might have saw what was happening on Friday night were head scratching about why there was so much conflict. I mean, I think part of it is um, we have been negotiating what is the value of property, right? So just property in general. It doesn't even have to be the politics of statue removal, right? The property of when businesses are burnt down. Mm -hmm. So property versus the quality of what would be human life in Chicago. That that also has been a dilemma for decades. Yeah. Gonna... And as Americans, yeah, we just really value property. I'll say that. <laughs> Americans love property. Yeah. But a lot of what John Lewis was was a big part of in, in Congress was, was about police reform and, mm-hmm. and about what that means today in 2020. Because, uh, you know, we have we heard that phrase in the last decade, two decades. And it means something to uh, one person. Uh, it's different than it, what it means to somebody else. So when we talk about what police reform is in 2020, what, what is it? What, what, through the eyes of John Lewis, but also through what we're seeing with the protest movement in 2020? Right. Well, it's happening differently in different states. So I happen to be pretty tired this morning because um, I was tracking what was going on in Minnesota. And at some point after 2 a.m., both our House and our Senate um, passed the Minnesota Police Accountability Act, mm. which is quite impressive because um, there were some partisan struggles around it. And so there was a deal that was struck that prohibits warrior-style training for officers. It also is a movement for increasing data collection surrounding um these incidents that have been having happening that have been deadly. And this kind of indicates probably the most significant legislation that's been passed in the history of Minnesota's criminal justice system. And so I think that has happened here because this is where George Floyd was killed. But I think that um, these kinds of bills are entering the state houses throughout the nation. I think about some of the words, and it was on yesterday on 1A, Jen, Jen White was talking about it. They did a quote of John Lewis, but just this idea of what happened in Selma got everybody's attention. And so you mm-hmm. had all of these protests that's, that sprung up around the country, and it, it affected the politicians, including the highest offices in the land, the president who made a speech at that time. But it seemed like there was some that that was the grassroots model for change, it, not unlike what we're seeing in Minneapolis, where because of right. the constant uh, call for for action from protest that, that's not dying down, it sounds like the House and Senate there have to make a change. I mean, is that it, you, you kind of see the formula uh, when people need things to change, how to get it done? I mean, exactly. And and that's why um, I'm such a promo- proponent of these strategies going hand in hand. Often people want us to choose and say, you know, which has more value, electoral politics or the social movements around them. And I insist that we need both. Mm-hmm. The last part I want to talk about is voter rights, because we've seen with COVID-19 uh, a rollback on, on what's available, a pushback against mail-in ballots. But another area where John Lewis was was a huge uh, advocate for and a champion for was voter rights or, uh, you know, to fight against voter suppression. Where are we in 2020? Because I, for one, am a little confused about uh, why this is is happening uh, in such a modern society. In my opinion, um, 
we've had a disappointing setback in Florida. And so on the day that both C.T. Vivian and John Lewis passed away, um, there was a Supreme Court ruling that um, will not allow the formerly incarcerated to vote in Florida. You know, those referred to as felons. Both John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, because they came from that part of the country, would be very disappointed. You know, the dissenters were Sotomayor, um, RBG, and Elena Kagan. And the rest of the court said that, um, you know, these people should not be able to vote. And the impact that that is going to have, the numbers are actually in the hundreds of thousands. Wow. And so it's it's really concerning. Um, there are at least 85,000 people who were registered to vote, which doesn't take into account the people that weren't registered to vote that will not be able to now. Hmm. And they could be prosecuted if they tried to vote. I mean, this uh, <laughs> I, we just have to pay attention to this. I mean, it's just it's something that continues to be, I think, one of the biggest issues of our time when it comes to voter suppression and rules from state to state. We'll leave it there. Professor Duchess Harris, professor of American studies at McAllister College and author of several books on race in, in America, including John Lewis, civil rights leader and congressman. Always a pleasure to have you, Professor. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And joining me now to discuss the life and legacy of the civil rights giant, Representative John Lewis, is a friend and colleague from Illinois, Representative Bobby Rush, Congressman of the 1st District. Congressman, welcome back to Reset. Well, thank you so much, Justin. I am very glad to meet on Reset once again. So first, your thoughts and reaction to the the passing of Congressman Lewis. Well, first of all, I just want to once again express my condolences to those who John's family, his son, and the rest of his family, to his friends and his acquaintances, and people who really loved him. And we all are very saddened by the past of John, but when we look at the totality of John's life, we are all inspired because John's life was the life of commitment. He lived a committed life mm. that is really inspirational to all of us. John was a simple person an ordinary individual who uh, came from ordinary circumstances, but yet he, and still he accomplished extraordinary and some of this superordinary results in his life. So his life is really a beacon for us all. John was a person who, because of his courage, he was able to challenge the heights of power. He was able to make an extraordinary contribution to this nation, to poor and oppressed people around the world. His leadership was exceptionally heroic. And that really was John's major attributes. He was not such a loquacious, gifted orator. He was not someone who achieved the heights of academic excellence, but Nobody, no one in this nation, no very few people of our generation can match the courage of John Lewis, the repeated courage of John Lewis. John Lewis was a public servant. He was the kind of public servant that did not run away from a problem, did not run away from violence, but he ran toward it and he never matched violence with violence. Mm the kind of person who 
knew that if there was that you don't put out fires uh, in most instances, you don't put out fire with fire. You put out fire with water, and so John used nonviolence to extinguish the violence of oppression, the violence of intolerance, the violence of racism. You know, Congressman Rush, there's been a lot said about his words, and we've seen this a lot on social media, uh, whether it's his, his motto, the idea of good trouble or necessary trouble. Where, where do you see a place for good trouble, necessary trouble in, in today's world? Well, you know, it's right before us right now. Good trouble is challenging and fighting this president's plan to send troops, uh, unnamed, undistinguished, unauthorized troops into cities to kidnap innocent Americans mm -hmm. and take them to and unmark cars to places that we don't know where they're taking them to. That, to me, that's the kind of terror that reminds so many of us of the terror of the Ku Klux Klan. And so we have got to fight this Klan militarism, these troops, the example of what's happening in Portland as we speak, the plans to move to spread terror to other major cities uh, in the nation, including our own Chicago. We all should rise up because that is the beginning of the end of a democratic nation. When I think about that, that idea of bringing troops in, or not federal agents in, I think of, you know, in your time in, in the late 60s with the Black Panthers, just the Mayor Daley's Red Squad, or the FBI siege on Fred Hampton's house. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of history when it comes to fighting for civil rights and federal agents intervening. It reminds us of real dark days. Uh, in our nation. And, you know, good people inspired by the life and legacy of, of John Lewis, you cannot sleep comfortably while this is going on in our nation. And we have to run toward good trouble. We got to create some trouble, all right? The trouble of freedom, justice, and equality. There has got to be good people have got to take a stand against evil forces in our nation. And that's what John is calling us to do. Right. And John understood, and I think that he had the sense of my life's work uh, was not in vain because he was able to live long enough to see the resistance, the resistance, this good trouble that people are beginning to engage in by marching and protesting and fighting for the values that make this nation a great nation, not only the nation a great nation, but to make uh, all the citizens of this nation a better citizen yep. and better human beings. So John was calling us and through his life, through his example, to rise up beyond our comfort zone. Yeah, Congressman Rush, my last question for you just has to do with we just talked with Professor Duchess Harris about Congressman Lewis's legacy and, and where he fits in and if he fits in with the protest movement of young people today in 2020. What's your thought on that? The idea of would Congressman Lewis, would John Lewis fit in with the movement that we're seeing today in 2020? In essence, this is a spiritual movement. This is an inward movement that's outwardly directed. And John would not just fit into it. 
He's at the forefront of it. This is a movement that was a part of John's DNA. The spirituality of John Lewis is present even today, and that's John Lewis' legacy. Mm. We can be inspired by him, who a humble, simple, ordinary man who did great and extraordinary work with his life because he lived a committed life, a life committed to freedom, justice, and equality. Hey, representing the 1st District here in Chicago, Congressman Bobby Rush. Uh, Congressman Rush, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that's today's Reset. Yesterday, Fresh Air replayed an in-depth conversation with Terry Gross and the late John Lewis. To hear that interview, just head to WBEZ.org. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you right here tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.